Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Comedy fans have known and loved Jason Manzoukas for years. Even if you don't know the name, you've probably known and loved Manzoukas and recognized him from his steam-stealing roles in FX's The League or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Drunk History, Transparent, I'm Sorry, No Activity, The Good Place, Big Mouth, or in movies such as The Dictator or The House or Baby Mama. And you've certainly heard him as one-third of the hit podcast, How Did This Get Made? Manzoukas now has his first starring role in a movie alongside Tony Revolori in The Long Dumb Road. Manzoukas sat down with me to talk about his own long and not-so-dumb road from Boston to Morocco to New York City to Hollywood. So let's get to it! So, uh, Jason, last things first. Uh, when you're talking about your uh, parents' sister, do you say aunt or aunt? Aunt. Ah, uh, that's the right answer. Uh, that's what I say because, fun fact, I have only one aunt and she's from Nahant. For real? Not from Nahant. Oh, wow. Yes. Well, that's wild. That's so, for listeners, that is the town I grew up in, <laughs> which is the smallest town in Massachusetts. That's so interesting. Do you. Uh, Isthmus? Uh, it is a. Isthmus? I believe it's called a tombolo. A tombolo. Is what it is. It's an island that is connected with a, by a man made. Um, uh, causeway in this causeway, case, yes. um, and I believe that somehow that's from when I was a kid. Okay, um, but yeah, it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny town in Massachusetts, coastal Massachusetts, just north of Boston, and it's really small. So I'm I'm shocked that your aunt is from there. Oh, that's great. Did you ever yeah. go there or for Thanksgiving? Ah, yeah. will you go there this Thanksgiving? Uh, they're in Florida now. Ah, okay. But, but yeah, my oh, aunt that's Pat, so funny. My aunt Pat and Uncle Charlie. Uh, what was their their last Hide. name? Their last name was Hyde. Do they have kids? Uh, my aunt Pat had two sons. Their last name was Marsh. But they were like 10, 15 years older than us. Oh, okay. Marsh? The Marsh boys, Brenton. Oh, I Kevin. feel... Kevin Marsh, I feel like I know. They were... They got in a lot of trouble. I feel like they, yeah, they, oh boy. Oh, I like that. All right, good. Uh, my par- yeah. I'm sure my parents will know exactly who they yeah, are. Yeah, all the McCarthys uh, in my family uh, are from Lynn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, sure. So, so Nahant is connected by a causeway to, to Lynn. Lynn. Yeah, and uh, when I was a kid, correct me if I'm completely mistaken, but when I was a kid, uh, going to the port, port hole? pub yeah. was a fancy Oh fancy no! You are, let me <laughs> let me disavow you of that. The porthole was not fancy. I don't think the porthole was ever fancy. Oh. By the way, R.I.P. the porthole. The yeah. porthole pub uh, in Lynn, Massachusetts, has just closed or what? is or is about to close. I'm not. I don't know what the actual uh, date on that is. But like a real institution of like North Shore kind of nautical themed uh, like towny bars yeah. slash restaurants seafood restaurants uh it has just closed or is closing and and that i was really disappointed that i was heartbroken to hear more heartbroken or less than uh, than all of the historic places along route one like hilltop sure the the ship yes all yeah everything's going away yeah. everything's going away but i'm always partial to north shore okay. route one i'm fine with route one but it's, it's all north shore for me baby <laughs> 
So I uh, I have to not let this bad joke uh, go. Sure. Uh, by the wayside. So the long dumb road. How did this get made? Oh, oh boy. Uh, how dare you? I, I only, how dare I, you? <laughs> well, it's your first lead role. Yes, it is actually. Yeah. So somebody which is really go, great. You yes. know what? This guy. Let's. Yeah, no, it really was. The it, it, it really was the. I will give full credit to Hannah Fidel, the writer director of this movie, was in, like really instrumental in in casting me in the lead in a way that, like like you said, nobody has before. It's it's not uh, it's not the it's not for lack of trying. So you so you she, have wanted to be a lead before? Yeah, no, I've and I've certainly auditioned for things and all that stuff, but it really was Hannah. Um, I had a, I read the script that Hannah and Carson Mel wrote, which I loved and I thought was terrific. And this is the kind of movie that I love. I love like a, you know, like a shaggy road trip kind of like uh, movie. That's I love those kind of things. And so this was really exciting. And, and I, you know, I, I I was like the my agents were saying she's meeting actors on it. We're going to try and get you a meeting. And so we went out for like a you know, a three hour coffee. And it was, it was awesome. And I, and I walked away being like, Oh, I feel like that went really well. I still hope she chooses me because I know she was meeting with people that were much bigger names than I was, right. you know, or than I am. Um, and so, and then her, the fact that she not only chose me, but I think really had to fight for me, uh, in the process, uh, was huge and was so, uh, meaningful to me. Um, uh, so to do it was like, uh, then to go and do it was really exciting to, to, to be in every scene of something, to be so, to be having to, uh, uh, track an emotional journey and an arc and all the stuff that is, just not really what I'm ever called upon to do. No, you know? you're more of like a uh, comedy hitman. Exactly. I come in for a couple of scenes here and there, or a couple of episodes here and there, and that's that's my that's what I do. And so it was. I really I loved it. You, were you aware of any of the other people who were up for your role? I am, but I'm not going to tell you who they are. Really? Yeah. No. That, oh. I think that's bad form. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then tell me this. So you actually... Oh, but I'd love to name names. You know what? I'm talking about Ray Liotta. I'm talking about Robert De Niro. I'm talking about Joe Pesci. The entire cast of Goodfellas was offered my part before me. You know, De Niro, he was in a good, uh, long, dumb road movie, Midnight Run. Mm. One of my favorite road yeah. movies, absolutely. We used to talk about Midnight Run all the time on this set, because like, we would always, we like, we were always referencing all of those kind of movies, you know, um, uh, uh, while we were talk, while we were kind of talking about the scenes or talking about stuff. It was, it was that was a big one. But before this promotional part of of making a movie. Uh, you did go to some festivals, right? Too? Yeah, we we premiered at Sundance, and then we've we, we've played a whole mess of festivals. We played the LA Film Festival, the Austin Film Festival. But what was it like, Sundance? Like, ooh, it was so cool. Expected to come out on stage after I love starring. Yeah, it was really. Ex I mean, I'll be honest, it was very nerve wracking because we played the Eccles, which is the biggest theater at Sundance. Um, 
And I, w- I was nervous. I was like, I'm going to watch, I'm going to sit in a, I can't remember, like an 1,100-seat theater, or maybe it's even more than that, a big theater, and watch this movie that I'm in almost every frame of with an audience. I know it's supposed to be funny. I think it works. I, I hope it works. You know, you just, you have that moment where you're about to see it for the first time with an audience, and you're like... Even if you believe in it, even if you think it's great, you're still like, oh, man, this is intense, you know? Uh, and it played great. And then afterwards, the Q&A was really fun and funny. And it was a great crowd. Um, and Sundance, I will say, like, as a kid growing up, you know, um, during the kind of indie film boom of, like, the 80s, you know, Sundance has, like, a real lore to me. The idea that that I got to bring, that I got to be the star of a movie at Sundance was so cool to me because that was always what seemed cool when I was growing up. Like, when I was a, you know, artsy, nerdy teenager obsessed with, like, Jim Jarmusch movies right. and uh, John Sayles and... Slice and videotape. Yeah, Soderbergh. All the movies yeah. that came out of Sundance at that time were the movies that were so much more interesting to me than what was popular at the time, which was seemed to be like nonsense, you know? Uh, so yeah, no, it was, it was like a really genuinely like a, um, a, 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 a check it off the list kind of career goal. Does going through that experience of watching yourself in a starring vehicle for the first time, does that give you any added perspective on how some of the cast must feel in the films that you do talk about on how did this get made? No, to realize that they went at that moment yeah. they're like, oh. Oh, sure. They, they didn't take doing this movie to do that. Like, <laughs> they, I will say, like, our, our podcast, yes, you know, we it's, it is all about, uh, you know, uh, dissecting or celebrating bad movies or unsuccessful movies mm-hmm. or whatever. But, like, the Paul uh, Shear, June Diane Raphael, and myself, we're the hosts. Uh, I think we have... Of a lot of uh, empathy and sympathy for people mm-hmm. who are trying to make these movies. Like we're not trying to tear anything apart. We get it. We've all, we, all three of us have been in movies that didn't work out for various reasons. Right. All three of us understand just how much effort and uh, 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 will it takes to get a movie made. So, or, or you know, to get a good movie made. Or so, like the the pitfalls and the the problems to us are what we I think we can see very clearly because of our experience. So yeah, it does. Uh, you know, doing that makes you feel very very close to. Um, to those people who've, who've, no, maybe not to the, to the people, maybe not. It doesn't make me feel any closer to the Tommy Wiseaus of the world, right. but it makes me, I, I certainly understand, uh, how things go awry. Well, with the exception of the disaster artist, the three of you haven't really spoken about any of the movies you've been in for the podcast. True. Yes. Was that a, a decision that you came to easily or every once in a while you'll suggest one of, We've, One of your films? People, we, here's the thing. A couple of things. We don't, we tend to not do many comedies. Mm-hmm. We tend to not do many comedies just because um, a lot of it is, it's, 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 it is so much more interesting to us, I think, to dig in on a movie like The Miami Connection or, or even like um, uh, Geostorm. 
you know, or, you know, I'm trying to think of things that are both kind of culty, like, uh, like Miami Connection, mm-hmm. or big budget, you know, Hurricane Heist, Geostorm, or, uh, or anything like that. Those are much more fun. Like, to talk about comedies is to talk about jokes. And I don't think it's as fun to dissect jokes necessarily. It's not as opposed to the other stuff. So I think we we don't do as many comedies. We predominantly are in comedies, and so yeah, I don't. We've never we've never covered. I don't think we've ever covered anything that any of us has ever been in. Although certainly we have anecdotally mentioned movies we've been in to illustrate points in other in other conversations. Yeah. So uh, let's take a step back for a second. Something else that you and I have in common is mm-hmm. that although we grew up in New England, immediately after college, we both went far, far away. Oh, nice. Where did you go? I went to Idaho. F- very far. Where I took my first, uh, my first newspaper job at a small, oh, that's cool. small town daily in Idaho. Great. And you went to North Africa? I did. I went to North Africa and the Middle East for a couple of years doing a, um, a Watson uh, fellowship, which is kind of a... A grant I got when I graduated that put me on a trip to study. Uh, it was like an ethnomusicology project mm-hmm. that I was doing uh, that brought me to Morocco and Egypt, uh, Israel and Turkey uh, for, yeah, almost two years, uh, yeah, studying music. But since we were both far away from our families and friends for a couple of years and we're both the same age, it strikes me that it was... We did this at the at the exact last moment before the internet could connect us all. Completely. So it really felt. I know I felt like I was separated oh, from everything. I, oh, I I I flew. My family brought me to the airport. I flew to Morocco. Mm-hmm. I landed and I was like completely alone. There was no. There was no. I mean, of course, there was an internet. The internet existed, but it wasn't something you I as a person participated in. This was nineteen ninety six. Right? 96? Yeah. Um, And so uh, I was, you know, um, completely cut off. Uh, You know, it was the the only way to be in touch with anybody was to go buy a phone card and call home. Um, And that was, I, I will say, kind of amazing because the challenge it set forth was really specific. It really is figure it out. Figure yourself out. You have to keep moving forward and succeed at this thing, but you're on your own. You don't, there aren't, you're not going to, you can't Google stuff. There's no, there's no hell. You're not going to be able to like, you know, uh, look up, you know, the stuff I wanted to research online or anything like that. I'd already had to have done all that. And now I was just kind of on the ground figuring it out, uh, which I do think was instrumental in kind of giving me the skill set to kind of then navigate making it work in this business which is very similarly kind of you're on your own right figure it out you know this is this is yours to to pursue and make of it what you will like nobody's here helping nobody's gonna do this for you nobody's gonna hand you anything it's 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 really you know the 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 experience of that period i think has been was very instrumental in in helping me navigate and negotiate this career Right, it has to. You have to build confidence in yourself, otherwise, you'll- and you have to be self reliant, you know, um, which was great. Um, and then at a certain point, 
there was a couple of times where you know where I would find either uh, a, some some place where I could get a, on a computer because I had just been given an email address for the first <laughs> time, and so I was able to every once in a while email to let people know I was doing it right and what was going on and blah blah blah. And so that so at a certain point that became a little easier, but still there was no there was no way to look stuff up. There was no it didn't exist. Had the thought of comedy entered your brain before that trip? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd done comedy in high school. Uh, we'd done, uh, like, uh, variety shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, uh, every junior and senior class would put on a show. Um, and so, and it was, you know, half talent show, half variety show. People would people would get up and sing and play guitar. And then me and my friends wrote sketches, okay. you know. And so that was the first, my first experience with that kind of stuff. And then in college, I was in an improv group. You know, there was an improv, there was a short form improv group in my there college. Okay. Yep. And then, um, and then when, while, during the course of being in college, part, some of the people from that group and some other people, we started a long form group. So we started doing like, UCB style, or at the time it was more IO style, mm-hmm. long form improv. Okay, where'd you go to college again? Middlebury in Vermont. Okay, yeah. Did you end up? Uh, did any of those people from your Middlebury troop end up sticking with it? They did. Uh, Jessica St. Clair was in that group. Oh wow! Uh, who then became my comedy partner mm-hmm. for almost a decade here in New York uh, at UCB. Is that um, how you ended up at UCB? No, uh, that's how she ended up at UCB because mm-hmm. she's younger than me. So I came, I moved to New York after living abroad. I moved mm-hmm. to New York, started doing UCB. She probably came a year or so later. Okay, because uh, she's th- three years younger than me. I, I can't remember exactly, but she's she she. I had graduated, done my thing, moved to New York, and she still hadn't graduated yet. So, okay. so I think then. So she, when she finished, she moved to New York and started doing UCB as well. What was UCB like when you got it, there? Uh, so when I got there, UCB was. Um, uh, there wasn't re- there was no theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was they were just the uh, the group, the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, and they would rent spaces around the town to do their shows in. Um, and then they started teaching classes, and those similarly were kind of at different spaces. Uh, and then for a while they had one location uh, called Solo Arts that was uh, on 17th, I think, that was a um, there was like a fifth floor walk-up place where they would do ASCAT, mm-hmm. and they would do a couple of other shows, uh, and then teach the classes in that space. So, so that's where I started. Uh, that's when I started, and then um, it was tiny. I mean, the community was incredibly small. When I took level one, the best way I can explain it, and this is like, uh, you know, very inside baseball UCB improv talk, but like <laughs> improvisers, you know, because now UCB is this massive, you know, um, sprawling kind of two cities, 
four to five stages. You know, the student body resembles now a small college more so than when I started. And it was like level one when I started. There were two level one classes. Each class had 12 people in it. So there was 24 level one students. Now there are probably over a thousand level one students between the two cities. You know, it's crazy. Um, and so it was very small and it felt very intimate, which was great. Um, and then we got the first UCB theater uh, on uh, uh, 22nd uh, when Giuliani shut down all the strip clubs. Um, uh, all of a sudden, all these theaters became available. And so you saw a lot of play people like UCB or small theater groups or whatever all of a sudden had access to stages. And so we took over the Harmony Theater. Uh, and that was home base for a while. That's 99, probably. So were you so early that the only teachers were the UCB? Yeah, my, all of, like, the UCB 4 and Armando Diaz were the teachers when, okay. I, when I was there. Yeah. Right, because I was going to say, yeah, before you moved, I remember you were performing with Ed. As a Ed Herbstman? Yeah, yep. as a Manzuka's brothers at the Magnet. Yes. So I knew that there was something with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Magnet. So Magnet then starts years later. Armando and Ed Herp, Armando Diaz, who's like a, you know, legendary improv teacher who they have a form called yep, the Armando. Exactly. There's a form called the Armando. There's I mean, he is, you know, when UCB started in Chicago, he was frequently a monologist for them. He came and was he taught. Uh, he was the art, not the artistic director. He was the head of the school, whatever that's called. I can't remember. He also was a writer on their TV show. He was, like, very integral with the UCB. But then at a certain point, split off from the theater uh, and then eventually starts uh, The Magnet. Did he do that before or after Ali split off? Uh, well, he and Ali split and started The Pit. Oh, okay. And then and Armando split from that and started The Magnet later. Yeah. Mm. The Tangled Web. Yes. Uh, the, of the New York improv uh, uh, community takeover by Chicago. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and then, but then so so I'd known Armando at that point for ages, and and then had also become good friends with Ed Herbstman, and so and and so Ed and I had just started playing around with this idea of doing a two person show, uh, and so we started doing yeah Manzuka's Brothers at the Magnet um, for for years. We did that show, and still try to whenever if I'm in town, we still try and do that show. Was that a uh Flip of the coin, whether it was Mansukas Brothers or Herbstman Brothers? It was not. He, <laughs> the story that Ed tells is he knew the way to convince me to do the show with him is if he told me it would be called the Mansukas Brothers. Ah. Is there something more magical about two-person improv than doing it with a full troupe? No, it's not more magical. Well, uh, I will something. say that it is... Um, it is more uh, – improv is cumulative learning, right? So the better you get at it, the harder it is to be kind of challenged by it, if that makes sense. You know, you see it starts to be like I can step on stage with a group of people and do a good show, especially with the people that I've been doing shows with for years. Um, and, and it's great and it's effortless and it feels like a, a wonderful game of like pickup basketball, you know, that you've been playing with friends forever. Um, whether it's ASCAT or the, my old group mother or soundtrack in LA that I do or whatever. But the idea of like what Ed and I do, or I do a show in LA called Manzukas and that is just me and a guest. 
uh, go on stage, we get a suggestion, and we do one scene for an hour. That's the conceit, is it's one one real-time scene. No edits, no, you're not playing other characters, you're not, there's no time jumps, there's nothing. It really is just a real-time, one-hour conversation. And that is harder. It's harder to do, you know? And so it just is, the thing about two-person that I think is why a lot of people who get really good at improv start to kind of go in that direction is just it starts that starts to be a world in which you can feel a little bit challenged again okay because it's relentless you you cannot stop right the, you don't no get to tag you out no one's gonna tag you out no one's gonna help you make it no one is gonna come off the back line meaning and like heighten and make it better no one's gonna no one you're never gonna stop and go to the back line and watch two other people do a scene and try and figure out how your scene interacts with that scene you're not none of those muscles are being used the minute you step on stage, the show begins, and it doesn't stop until the end of the show. And that, you really, in every other improv show, in every other improv scene or, or show or ensemble, you don't have that. You don't have that kind of, uh, it's full on the whole time. Right. And that's exciting. That, I love that. The, there, is no, there is no out. Nobody's going to save you. Nobody's going to help you. Nobody's going to anything. Less kind of like uh, the long dumb road. It's absolutely, like, we're trapped in this van together. In a car. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> when so since you've been doing improv for two decades now, at the beginning, how much of what you envisioned your career was going to be has aligned with what's happened? Well, I mean, is this what you pictured? This is some version of what I pictured. You know, like uh, this is some. So, I mean, this is some version of what I would have hoped. You know what I mean? Um, uh, I think that early on, I really... Early on, simply because the path seemed very clear, I think I very much wanted to be, like almost everybody in my peer group, wanted to be on SNL or The Daily Show. Because those were the two shows that if you were kind of coming up in comedy in New York... Those are the two working New York comedy shows. Those were, and they were, you know, uh, The Daily Show couldn't have been more relevant and vibrant during that period in like the early 2000s, right. you know? And so everybody was, and you know, and that, that, those were the jobs that I was like desperate for, you know, especially The Daily Show because it was just, it was such an exciting show at that time. Um, so I think early on, definitely those were the things that I was like, I, I can see that. I can see those things. I get, I auditioned for The Daily Show. Like it's, it felt like close, you know, but in my... Did you wear a suit? I did, yeah. Oh yeah, for did the audition. Shave? Yeah. Yeah. I shaved, I wore a suit. Oh yeah. And my beard wasn't as big at the time as well, mm -hmm. so it wasn't too crazy to shave. But... um but yeah, no, I, those, those things were very clear to me, but like, but definitely like big picture wanting to work in, in the, uh, in this business. This is, I, I did think like, oh yeah, like I'd love to be working in TV and film in the kind of capacity that I am now. You know, like I always pictured myself as a, like a character actor, okay. you know, uh, in comedy. Like it, you know, I never thought I was going to be like the, um, the all-American lead of the TV show or whatever. I always knew I would be... I never thought I would be the Seinfeld. I always presumed I would be the Kramer, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. So you would be, like, 
the third guy with Will and Amy in the house. Or exactly. The, or the sidekick to Sasha Baron Cohen in the dictator. Ex- perfect. Exactly. You know, and then hopefully maybe I'd get to eventually. You're in the, you're in the picture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The main. Which is fine. Like, because I'm, again, coming from UCB where everything is based on ensemble. Everything's based on like a group. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, you know, I was never looking for like the idea. Like to me, the league is the most like is so successful as a career stepping stone for me because it is ensemble and improv and a group of people, most of whom I'd been already working with or known for years. Right. So you already had all the chemistry. And so the, that to me is great because we can all support each other and everybody gets to be funny. Everybody gets to score. Everybody gets to have uh, make a mark, you know, and that's always what felt important to me it doesn't i don't need to be as much as i am excited to be the lead of this movie because i get to play an emotional arc i love that 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 it's me and tony you know who i think is half of if the movie if you feel like you watch this movie and you think it works and you think it's funny and you think uh, and people are like oh you're really good like there's like a real sweetness there's a real heartfelt uh uh, nature to what you're doing so much of that is because of what tony's giving me you know what i mean like so much of it is because i'm working off of someone who is an incredibly good actor, you know, and that was the same with the house. You know, I feel like uh, initially in the house, the ending of the house, uh, Michaela Watkins and I get divorced. You know, I sign the divorce papers and we get divorced and test audiences were like, no, they have to get back together. And so in reshoots, we reshot it so that it looks like we're going to get back together. And and that is like a hundred percent testament to Michaela Watkins's performance made me seem more likable. You know what I mean? Like instead right. of being like you know the sign the papers you know uh, shrill kind of like ex wife, she played it like um, she played it with a degree of. Um, of ambivalence, you felt like from her that she might want to be still with this person. And so the audiences believed her. And, and that was so cool. And that is what I love about, uh, comedy. And that's what I love about this stuff is the ensemble makes everybody better in success. So before I let you go, I want to know what it was like. Because you did at one point desperately want that Daily Show gig. Yeah. So much that you had a suit, you were oh, yeah. shaven. When you didn't get it, yeah. how did you deal with that? Oh, I was bummed. But, you know, um, I was always very comfortable with the fact that um, I was not going to get most of the jobs. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, that seems... That seemed to me early on very evident. You know what I mean? That um, that that this business is, you know, if you're doing it well, you're constantly auditioning. And, and if you're even doing it great, most of those auditions you won't get. You're just not, you can't, you, you're not, so the constant rejection is something you just have to kind of get get okay with in your mind um, and it, it never bothered me uh, and I think partially it was I was benefiting from I could get up on stage two, three nights a week at UCB and and be very funny and be rewarded for the thing that I thought I was good at like I could perform and the shows would go well and that was enough to keep me going because I'd be like, oh no, I'm on the right track I, I think I'm I think I'm in the right 
sort of zone. Um, I'm disappointed. I would be heartbroken uh, to not get those jobs because they were they seemed like so. Especially that Daily Show job. I just I was. It seemed so exciting. You know, uh, uh, that time of that show. Um, Did they tell you why? No. No, just, it wasn't. It just, just was a, like it just. You're not moving forward. Right. Um, and then I and I auditioned a number of times for The Daily Show every year. Is that better know? or worse when they don't tell you why? It, I, you know, I, I I'm trying to think if there's ever been a time when you know I I never either way. Either way, you know, you're not getting the job. And listen, if they're like, listen, you're not getting it because I remember there was one time where I was up for like a for a minute. It looked like I was going to have a like for what at the time would have been a big role. But in the movie, it was a small role uh, in a, like but in a big movie. And I was like, they were like, he your cast. It's going to be you. You're the guy, blah, blah, blah. And I got so excited. And then at a certain point, they were like. The director is friends with Sean William Scott, and so he's going to have him do it instead as like a cameo. And I was like, oh, nuts, you know. And so that's like the, those are the bummers, you know, where you're like, oh, you didn't get it. because. But I was always so like, oh, but that's how this works, you know, like. You know, people want to work with their friends. People want to do that stuff. And now I've certainly benefited from that on the other side. Right. I was you just, know, I was just going to say, because there have been times probably earlier when you saw fellow UCB people getting stuff that you might have. Oh, you want it. Oh, when I auditioned for The Daily Show, the two people that got it were Rob Cordry and Ed Helms. You know, and then the next time I auditioned for The Daily Show. It was, I think, maybe Riggle got it or uh, another one of my peers mm-hmm. from UCB got it. Like, oh, I was always losing roles to all of my friends. I still lose roles to all of my friends, and I'm happy to. You know what I mean? Like, these are people who – these are people for whom I – their success is my success. Like, so much of my success is based on the fact that, you know, like – Amy Poehler put me in Baby Mama. You know what I mean? The right. first movie I was ever in because she turned around and was like, hey, I can help get people that I like or that I think are good in these smaller roles. And so uh, pulled me up. Scott Armstrong um, pulled me up when he was able to like get and help me sell shows and write movies. Uh, Nick Kroll has put me in all of his stuff. All these people, Cordry had me write on Children's Hospital. Uh, all these people, all of the, the UCB community is so supportive. What I love about it is it's so supportive that everybody is rooting for each other that it, I always believed there's enough work for everybody and now more so than ever there's we're drowning in places that want tv shows places that want to hire writers and actors to make short form and long form content everybody can work so and everybody is and that's what's great the whole i think that ensemble support ucb kind of ethos improv ethos i don't want to make it ucbs because it's it's ios it's second cities it's groundlings all of these places like the predominant um, mindset of of supporting each other, you know, like Bridesmaids is a perfect example. Kristen comes out of Groundlings. She and Annie write a script. You know, at that point, Melissa McCarthy's been on Gilmore Girls for seven years, but they still think the thing that we've seen her do amazingly, she's never gotten to do. So let's write in Melissa's 
strengths to bridesmaids and basically make a movie star out of Melissa McCarthy. Would somebody have done that at some point? Probably. But it's so much based on their shared history at Groundlings. That's exciting. That's awesome. You know what I mean? We made those Mr. Neighbors House um, specials for Adult Swim the last couple of years, me, Jesse Falcon, Brian Husky, and Rob Corddry, because of a conversation we had at a bar where we were like, nobody lets Husky lose his mind on television. Right. Let's do something where we can make Husky lose his mind on television. Right. He's always the mild-mannered straight guy. Exactly. And yet the thing that's always been the funniest to me is when Husky's rage boils over on stage. And so now we're in a position where we can go and pitch that idea. And whereas we might have had that conversation at the bar 20 years ago and done it as a midnight UCB show, now we do it as a 3 a.m. Adult Swim show. And that's the difference that 20 years brings, you know? But the idea that we still want to all work with each other, that we still want to support each other and get make sure each other get seen the way we like we like our and our fans of each other. So yeah, no, I lost parts to all my friends, and I'm thrilled to have lost it. I I only want for everybody to succeed, you know, because that I think means more. I will succeed as well, if that makes sense. It does. Well, Jason, I've always been rooting for you, and I will continue to do so. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much, Jason. Absolutely. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.